Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back. This is the Masters of Modern Podcast. I'm here, Alex Kessler, with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's going on, guys? And today joining us, Andrew Brown. Andrew Brown is a multiple top 16 GP and top 32 GP winner slash achiever. Competitor. Competitor. Uh, How's it going? Yeah, thanks for inviting me to the show. I'm really happy to be on it. Uh, what are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about the fact that Andrew is affectionately referred to by me as AB. His, his name is Andrew Brown. I like to call him AB. My name okay. is Ben Bateman. Sometimes he'll call me BB. You guys are wondering what the vernacular means. That's exactly what it means. Okay. That's good for people to know out there in the world. Um, today, <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about mulliganing and the art of mulliganing and or the faults that many people fall into when mulliganing. And then we're going to do a nice little deck tech on Scapeshift, which was a top two competitor this last weekend at GP Madrid. Mm. Uh, speaking of GP Madrid, crazy. Everyone thought that Birthing Pod was a dead duck in the water as long as Tarmogoyf, and pretty much they ruined, or not ruined, they ruled the top eight of the Slash GP. It's a very good deck. It's a very, very good deck. Birthing Pod. Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely Pod really showed up this this weekend. Like, uh, I didn't... I didn't expect... I didn't expect Pod to do very well, and, like, it just won the tournament, pretty much. The, the new innovation of Siege Rhino and extra Thrag Tusks... Right. ...just really took over the, the whole inbred metagame of we gotta beat Blue Red Delver and we gotta beat Jeskai Ascendancy. Right. I mean, it, it was interesting. I, I'll eat my hat a little bit. Before this, I was like, Blue Red Delver, 20% better than every other deck in the format. At a minimum, there's no way this is a problem. And then Siege Rhino is the card that comes out of the gates running yeah. and wins the whole thing. Well, it's really difficult. Or at least gets it. I mean, it does It does make sense if you think about it. Like, everybody knows that Thragtus is a good card, right? And, and obviously, in theory, if you're just casting a Siege Rhino is good. But if you can resolve a pod, which has always been why that deck is good, if you can resolve a pod, like, oftentimes decks have a really hard time dealing with what you can muster up. There's such a good chain you have. You know your deck so well. Right. But when you can Helix somebody, when that card comes into play, at a certain point, Delver doesn't have that many spells that are going to deal with a 4-5 very well or, like, a recursive Thrag Test that's gaining you life. I mean, Lightning Bolt, like, Bolt Snap Bolt's great and everything, but at a certain point, you can't you can't race them and, like, get right. in front of gigantic creatures that are gaining life well enough to compete. So it does make sense that a Resolved Pod is probably going to beat a Delver deck. Yeah, you can definitely run hot where it's just you keep... Uh... You keep a hand with Pod, two lands, and a Dork, and then your opponent pretty much can't win the game. Like, in so many matchups, it's literally unbeatable. Like, just a turn two Pod, turn two Voice, turn two Kitchen Finks is very difficult for a lot of decks to beat. Well, I remember, like, originally when uh, when Rug Delver was coming out, like, when this format was getting big, and Brad Nelson put this video online. This is, like, probably two or three years ago, and he was teching it for SCG, and he was just like... He's like, this is the best deck in the format. But then he's like, at the end of the video, he's like, but it's super, super bad on the draw. He's like, Serum Visions is so much worse than Ponder. This deck is terrible on the draw. And if you think about that matchup, so they have that hand you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You've got a Delver and a Spell Pierce. What are you going to do? You're going to play Delver and you're screwed. You're not yeah. going to be able to stop Pod and then you lose the game because you played Delver on the draw. Like, it's... I, I think that's... I mean, there's a combination. I think one of the reasons that Rug did a little bit better is that you get a little bit better answers to Birthing Pod just in general from playing green than blue red would classically have right and then on top of that decks right now aren't like most decks probably didn't come in being like oh i have to worry about how to handle a tarmogoyf right yeah th i mean it's not a new innovation like uh if you remember a couple tournaments back like in richmond there there was a big influx of tarmo twin right it was literally just splinter twin plus some fetch lands plus a tarmogoyf right right um, I mean, it's a really good kind of like level two strategy where people on level zero are playing this deck, people on level one are trying to beat the level zero deck, while people on level two are just innovating and beating both of those decks. Right. I mean, it, it's it's a classic joke that Tarmogoyf is the best blue creature ever printed in the sense <laughs> that like, it's really like almost every single deck in the format of modern at some point has been, had Tarmogoyf added to the list and done well at a GP. <laughs> well, what was it we were talking about last week, right? How each color has that that super, super good two drop, right? right. So, yeah, like, so yeah. Stoneforge has white and black, it, or white has Stoneforge and black is Dark Confidant. You were saying how you thought Pyro is the red. Pyro is red, yeah. for sure. And then uh, what Snapcaster's blue. Right. I, then, I was actually saying that 
Eidolon of Revel was the new red one, being like mm-hmm. rare was a requirement for that. But uh, yes, for sure, Pyromancer is like the closest thing. And yeah. if that isn't a requisition, that's like it. And let's not forget, green has scavenging ooze. Scavenging ooze, right? Right. And right. That's, I mean, that's. I, I and Tarmogoyf is all and of the Tarmogoyf. colors. Yeah. Like, Tarmogoyf is a gold card, right? Yeah. Hybrid. Yeah, but it's, it's it's funny too that when you think about it, how like you know each color in the color pie, like each color sort of has its advantages. Like those other cards all generate card advantage in some way. Mm-hmm. Tarmogoyf is just better than other creatures at two mana, so it doesn't need card advantage. It's just going to be like four or five or five six for two. So like it's worth two cards in that sense, sort of. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think it's like funny. It's like so indicative of green that that's what you're getting. You're just getting a beefier creature out of the Green's just, card. this is it. This is what it does. It's bigger than everything right, else. Right, exactly. And yeah. will always be bigger than things because it scales up as the game goes on. While, like, all the other ones are like, I'm doing something tricky. Yeah, I know. It's funny how that works. Anyway. Green just likes to do what it does. Attack with four fives. Yep. So, that being <clears throat> said. Let's, uh, yeah, let's get into mulliganing, the, the subject of tonight. For those of you who don't know, mulliganing is the act of when you first draw your seven-card hand, you are allowed to get rid of that hand if it's bad, terrible, or you just don't like it, and get one less card in a new hand. So if I have seven cards, I ditch it for six cards, and then five cards, and four cards, and three cards, and you can go to zero cards, which generally means you're not going to win. The obvious like reasons you're going to mulligan are zero or seven lands, or like six lands or something. That's like kind of, if you on the most base level, like if you have zero or one, or if you have six or seven lands that's probably going to be a mulligan the question becomes what like what are the smart moments to mulligan and on top of that format to format how is it so different you know what i mean it's like deck to deck format to format it can be such a different conversation a lot of pros kind of talk about mulliganing and as it's one of the major three ways to become very good at magic where you know there is a certain barrier like you can play your deck generally correctly but like Deck choice is really important, sideboarding is really important, and mulliganing is really important. You can, before you start anything, the most major decision you make when you sit down to a match is what your mulligan plan is going to be. Yeah, and I think depending on the format, you can mulligan a certain number of times, you know, I I guess if you were playing in limited, going down past probably five is probably going to be a loss. Five is already pretty loose. If you get to four, likely you're going to lose the game. You're going to lose the game if you're on four in limited. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people have won on four before. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, four, limited especially, is all about card parity. Like, your cards aren't going to be, especially once you start winning, aren't going to be that much better than your opponents. Sure. So, you know, card advantage becomes so much more valuable and making sure, and it depends on the format, but, like, making sure you have a lot of cards. But, like, the other side of that is, it depends on the format. There are formats like Zendikar where mulligating down to four was not necessarily the worst decision because Mm -hmm. you're getting in there on the back of a... A geopede, which is yeah. going to win the game for you all by itself. So let's yeah. just do a quick examination. Take a minute here. If you, in, where where is the tipping point, for, in, like in each format where you think you've gone too far? Like if uh, on on average mode deck in that format, let's start with vintage. Like what three? Can you go down to three and still win a game in vintage? Probably. I mean, LSV had a story recently where he mulliganed to three and he won, where his hand was Lotus Land, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Right, and that's totally that. That's right there. Card yeah. card power is so off the charts that a mulligan right. to three is possible. But mm-hmm. I think in, in 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 vintage, you can very comfortably go to five, yeah, and even four sometimes, and not be like, I'm just going to lose. Like mm-hmm. you're, you can still recover. Well, I, I mean, to be totally honest, I think it really depends on what strategies are the best. Sure. I think you know a conservative approach, which is you know mulliganing less often, you're going to do much better if you're playing you know ramp strategies or strategies that don't mulligan very well, mm-hmm. where like every card matters. You need giant card parity if you're going one for one with decks. So decks that don't really necessarily gain value, but are just like lightning bolt, lightning bolt, lightning bolt. I land a threat and it kills you. Right. Those decks don't really want to mulligan because you don't draw cards. You just need to be able to handle what they're doing one for one. So then in legacy, how far can you go? You can go pretty deep because the cards that are best, I think, at mulliganing, the ones that can mulligan pretty heavily are like combo decks, control right. decks that have really good draw card engines, uh, tempo decks that like kind of can handle that situation, and those are rampant in Legacy. Legacy is made basically up of control, combo, and tempo. So, so I, would like, say, I would say in Legacy then it feels like you can you can go down to five and still feel pretty confident. I at think four, if you're a combo deck, you can go down to four because you can just, I mean, like, it's a risk, but you can win off of four. Like, right. there are Painted yeah. Stone can just right. get you with four cards. Yes. And Easy. if you're a control deck, you maybe want it, like, five as a minimum. And, mm-hmm. and, and minimum is relative because, like, it's all situational. Sure. If you're down to five, but your opponent's playing mono red and you're playing a deck, and you have a hand that just can't beat Mono Red, you should mulligan. Like, yeah. your your chances of winning are higher getting four cards than they are the guaranteed loss that you have in your hand. So now in Modern, I feel like going to five is pretty bad. Like, I feel like six, five's possible. I, I think most of the power levels in Modern, 
because turn because you're it's a turn four format, I feel like you probably can't really go to five and feel very good about it, especially if you're on the play. Yeah, and because Thoughtseize is a very relevant card in the format, mulliganing and mulliganing past six in modern is kind of a death sentence most of the time. I mean, obviously, we talked about the hand where it's like two lands, hierarch pod, right? You can right. you can easily win with that hand, and then they just Thoughtseize you, and you yeah, just and you lose, lose. Yeah. right? And that's I mean, that's the crazy. Yeah, I I agree. So Thoughtseize being such a prominent card, such a powerful card uh, in main decks and sideboards mm-hmm. can can definitely house you. What about what about standard? Standard, uh, I mean, with the with the Scrylands, because yeah. all the decks play a, a very high density of Scrylands, I think that mulliganing is a lot less um, uh, uh, relevant. Because okay. you, can, you can keep a two-lander on the play, you can keep a two-lander on the draw, and you can kind of, like, stack your deck or, like... Well, I mean, something to remember about Standard right now is, yeah. like, the, the major cards that are on the top of the format are, you know, stuff like Courser, where you're going to gain so much advantage for, A, you draw the lands from the top of your deck, so you're going to be going through your deck for the value you need, and B, with fetch lands, Corsair X kind of as a little mini top, so you can literally choose what the top of your deck's going to be with much more efficiency. Sure, but so that's this standard. I, I was sort of more referring to, like, the average power level of us standard and I think it, format. I think it definitively matters. Like, okay. for instance, yeah, right now, fair. mulliganing, you can go much deeper, but theoretically last year when it was all about control matchups that were, like, had okay card advantage engines, right, right. it was, mm-hmm. like, like... Pack rat needed like you were punished for mulliganing with a pack rat in your deck. Right, and also to be fair, standard has thoughtsies right now. I mean, standard does have thoughtsies, but it's less relevant because the strategy is not as powerful. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, the other side of that is like thoughtsies. A thing that thoughtsies does do a format is it kind of amalgamates the whole power level. There are not nearly as many decks that are like I am hinging on this one card being right. good. The strategies are less narrowly right. narrowly efficient than they would mm-hmm. be. In so like thoughtsies, what it does to a format actually probably makes it a little bit better to mulligan because your deck needs to be able to function mulliganing automatically. Like, your opponent's right. going to make your best card go away, so your deck should be able to function with one less card anyways. Totally so agree. now for the final one, which is limited, which I think, I actually think, even though this is a modern podcast, I think mulliganing in limited is the most relevant. I, I feel like definitely. it makes the biggest difference. And so now in, in limited, that's, again, it is format dependent, but how deep can you comfortably go on the play in limited before, like like you said, the parity is, is you're so many shitty... Uh, back up, so many poor commons in your deck that are just not good cards, generally, that the density of those cards in your deck means you're going to draw mostly those cards. You won't be able to recover if you've gone past a certain point. And I think this is an... I mean, like, I think limited leans the most to conservatism, where you want to mulligan the least in limited. Yes. But I also think that it is format-dependent to extend as everything else, where what strategies are good, what are you trying to do? Like, this format... Right now, limited, you probably could survive a little bit better sure. with mm-hmm. a mulligan or two because there are so many like semi-slower deck. The power level is lo- relatively even because of morph, where right. so many of the creatures are just gray ogres for the first four turns, so right. you have a little bit more time to kind of find parity. Though on the other end, and the other side is like, you don't want to be in this format without playing three and five drops. Right. So if you don't have a three drop in your hand, you're probably not going to do as well as you would if you had mulligan and try to get somewhere. Yeah. So okay, let's ask this then. One of one of the the like entry point, you know, get get good at magic, become a pro type of things that people will say to you is you probably don't mulligan enough, right? Like it's 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 a newer player, a more kitchen table player doesn't understand the value of taking a mulligan. Like they look at their seven, they have lands and spells, and they think there's three lands here, there's four spells. I'm just gonna roll with it. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is to have a plan when you look at your hand? To have to Always. have an idea of what you're yeah. what, instead of just it's extra important. <laughs> yeah, but I, what I mean is like, let's say you look at that hand and it's four cards, and you can you know you can cast out. You have the right colors. You have mana. You figure yeah. you draw those lands. <clears throat> well, you got to figure out what your like what's what's your best best path to victory. Like, what is my opponent going to do? What are they gonna What are they gonna do that's going to stop me from winning? And how can I stop my opponent from winning? Like, I mean, it is fully format dependent, so that's that's fair. And, yeah, and like, even deck de- and deck and matchup dependent, it's so specific, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I think mulliganing is the most difficult part of Magic. Everything else you can, to a certain extent, ahead of time plan on. But like a mulligan, if I'm playing a deck, I need to know how good is my hand. Did they mulligan? How good yeah. is their hand? Are they an aggro deck? Are they a tempo deck? How does my deck handle this? Do like if I'm against aggro, a, a hand with all removal could do okay, but if I'm against control, this hand is terrible and you would never win a game. Right. I think it's more polarizing in Modern and in Legacy, though. I think it's extremely difficult to look at your first seven and know that 
these this hand could work against a large portion of the format, but if I'm playing against this certain deck, I'm just going to lose immediately. Like, if you look at a hand that has three spells, four lands, it's looking good, but I don't have a one-drop, and you're playing against a pod deck that just has the hand of Hierarch into pod, then you're, you're just going to lose. You're going to be on the back foot the whole game and yeah. most likely not be able sure. to catch up. Sure, and that's, that's easier to figure out when you're in, in game two. So I think actually that's one of the reasons in modern it's so important and so many of the decks ha are proactive. Mm -hmm. I think in, if, in standard you can kind of be a little bit more of like a random amalgamation of what you're trying to do, but in modern, like, you need to have a game plan A so that when you keep that opening hand, you're like, okay, well, if I'm scape shift, then I'm going to just try and get lands into play. Whatever my opponent's doing on turn on game one especially, I'm just going to do my game plan, and yeah. I believe, and that's why I took this deck to the format, that this is going to beat most opponents because they are also going to do that thing, and my thing is slightly better than theirs. Well, I think it's really funny, too, when you look at modern. There are a lot of very powerful cards in modern. So right. that, that, that classic hand of, of four spells, three lands, not necessarily what you want to do. You're going to have four good cards in your hand. And there's, mm -hmm. less, there's less overall just catch-all answers. There's not like a force of will where... You know, in Legacy, if I keep a hand and I don't know what my opponent's playing, I can, as long as there's a Forceful on there, I can know they're like, okay, if they're doing one of the ten things that just auto-kills me if I don't, like, stop them, right. I can stop them because they have Forceful Will. In Modern, that doesn't really exist. So being more proactive is why the format is so much more, like, semi-combo-driven than normally, or it's a format that has Thoughtseize, which is probably the best, if not only, catch-all yeah. answer in the format. Thoughtseize right. is kind of the catch-all answer. Um, I mean, Bolt and Path are also really good. Yeah. Um... Like, a lot of times, uh, I play blue-eye-red kind of control yeah, yeah. in modern, so when I see my opponent play, like, forest, birds, like, there's, like, the semi-gambit game of, like, do I kill it and stop his pod? What if he plays a voice after this? So I think, like, all the catch-all answers in modern, like, they're pretty efficient when it comes to, like, Thoughtseize, Lightning Bolt, Path to Exile. Right, and that's why you also see most of the control decks are a combination of white, red, blue, and yep. you use blue for card advantage, and um, <clears throat> or black-based decks, which are generally the mid-range Thoughtseize right. side decks. And on that point, I also wanted to say that Dig Through Time, I think, is a card that really helps this kind of do I mulligan or not conversation, because Dig Through Time lets you get to the more loose answers of things, the things that are like, oh, this is going to be slightly better against this and slightly worse against things, and that allows you to kind of mulligan a little bit more aggressively. It's also, Th Thoughtseize is also a brewer's worst nightmare, because generally speaking, when you're like coming up with some sweet idea, and you're like, <laughs> yeah, I use, use that word just for you, AB. Uh, when you're coming up with some sweet idea, and you're like, oh, this is such a cool card that's underutilized, you know, this is going to be so good, and then like, you get you get thought seized and your whole plan just goes in the trash can, which is why these redundant like redundancy know, is so important. Yeah, that's why black green right. X and, and Jund like those decks were so good for so long because it's just a big pile of good cards that don't really care mm -hmm. if you lose one of the best ones. You're going to draw yeah. something that generates incremental card advantage. Yeah. And the reason pros like to play that deck is because it's fifty fifty against the metagame, essentially, and right. they can use their large amounts of practice time. Their more inherent skill, they can just use that to the advantage, and instead of making it a 50-50 matchup, it's going to be 70-30 in their favor. So give me an example for you, Andrew, of a, of a hand, let's say in blue-white-red, okay. a deck you play, what's a, what's a hand that's on the fence for you? Like, if you, if you're, let's say you're on the play, you're blind, you're game one, and you draw this hand, like, and you look at it, what, what makes you think? Uh, well, if I, if I don't have Bolt, Path, Manalik, or Remand, it's probably an Automole, like... If your hand is like Snapcaster, Restoration Angel, Sphinx's Rev, three land, four lands, like it's 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 really hard to win with that hand because you don't have like the proper tools, or if you don't have if it's like Electrolyze and just like if you don't have Remand, Bolt, Path, or Leak, it's probably audible. You can't really interact with the early board in the way that you're going to need to get to that late game. And, yeah. And that deck is all about getting to the late game and not mm -hmm. having a way to stop what they're doing early is going to overrun you very quickly because as we mentioned earlier, the format is so much about just being aggressive and, and punching them in the face as soon as possible. Okay, let's let's take that exact same hand, uh, except that you're going to throw in a second Snapcaster Mage and uh -huh. you're going to throw in a Path to Exile and it's two lands. Oof. Um... One of the issues with going at this kind of conversation yeah. is that the only way to really know for sure, per matchup, per what you're doing, because like that hand, not great against most decks, but it's not the worst against something like... Black Green X. Yeah, where like, you know, 
it would take a hundred hands of knowing these seven cards, like because yeah. you could also draw ten lands the next hand or draw three lands. So it, it's not the best way to kind of look at how to get better at mulliganing. The two things you really need to be looking at are a the deck I'm playing against. Is this a hand that can beat them? Can I win with this hand? But the point right. of this, I'm sort of trying to look at the basic concept of it. When it's game one, you don't know what you're up against because that's so much of the time. Like the beginning Magic player, they're not even when they're introduced to the concept of mulliganing more aggressively, they're not really getting they're not getting to a place where they're thinking about game two and the, and the six cards they've brought in and they need to draw one of those cards yet. They're mm -hmm. literally thinking about oh, you're saying that I should, if this just has lands and spells and they're all good cards, I should right. and throw what this I'm, away? I'm saying more, looking at card-specific answers is not the best way I'm going about it. What you really need to think is, like, is, like, as you said earlier, the problem is I don't have anything proactive for four turns. Mm -hmm. Like, Snapcaster Mage on turn two is not, is not a card that would see play without the versatility of everything else, and you have nothing that right. offers that to you. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, especially in current blue-white-red decks, which aren't, mm -hmm. like, the blue-white-red... Um, Geist. No, sorry, yeah, the blue, red, red, Geist, Delver decks of the past were like, yeah. then playing Snapcaster Mage on turn two was the correct answer because right. the point is yeah. to get damage. Sure. But in, and in that hand, you're not doing anything proactive. Right. The deck's not meant to be proactive. The deck is supposed to be reactive. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the rare ones in modern. And so having that in a format where you need to be in somewhat answering what they're doing isn't going to be good. Yes, adding a path makes the deck a completely different conversation because yeah. they, if they play a creature, you can stop what they're trying to do. And you have Snapcaster Mage to answer the second one on turn three, and then yeah. you have Restoration Angel, and by that point you hopefully drew a bolt or something. Sure, sure. So looking at what you're doing in that perspective, card by card it matters, deck by deck, and, and it's better to kind of figure out, test your deck, figure out the best plan of action vaguely and the reasons for it, not necessarily card by card interactions. See, but how many times do you get to the end of a, a PTQ, a tournament, something, and you've played all these matches, and you think back to your specific games and the ones that you did take that aggressive mulligan? All the time. Right. And when you get to that point, how many times do you think, I probably won that game because I mulliganed? Or you think, oh, I should have mulliganed that hand. What was I thinking? And the thing is, because of the variance in Magic, obviously, getting you know mana hosed and flooded and, and all, the, all the variables that we can't you know plan for, you can try to play the percentages, but you really can't plan. How often do you feel like you did it correctly all day. I mean, how, how much, how influenced by the results of those games should you feel, I guess is the real point. Right. I would argue even pros at the highest levels, if they look back at their day, don't think they mulliganed perfectly every time. Right. But that's the problem with mulliganing is like, the odds of knowing what you should have done are impossible. That's mm -hmm. why no pros agree on the exact strategy you should go about this. Because it, you're just playing the numbers. Well, it's not even just playing the numbers. It's that like, it's objective and there's no way to really know what could have happened. Sure. Like, yeah. my... I kept that, I mulliganed that hand, and I went down the five, and that hand was terrible. Well, there's no way that odd, the odds are that I would have known that that was a possibility. So the correct choice was still mulliganing. And beating right. yourself up for decisions like that, it's better to have made the correct decision and still done badly than sure. to make a bad decision because you don't want the correct decision to end up badly the 50% right. of the time it happens. You know, something that I always kind of consider, and it makes it easier to mulligan, because I think a lot of the problem that new players are generally early game players like have with making mulligan decisions is like it's so ingrained that card advantage is king mm -hmm. and like that's the first lesson you get taught when you start playing magic yeah. that going down one card is so scary and they don't want to do it because it could be worse and everyone's also been bitten by like mulling to six or like you know no lands in my seven hand mulling uh no lands in my six card hand mulling again no cards in my five card hand it just like feels so bad it makes you afraid of going down to six sure. and five but like i honestly when I'm playing, I assume that I'm going to mulligan a six before I draw my seven card hand. And if I get an extra card in my seven card hand, awesome. Yeah, that that's, that that's hand really is right. like way like now I'm way above what I expected to be. And then going down the six is just where I'm expecting to get to. And then once I'm there, that's when I'm really start thinking about like, can this be my opponent or do I really need to go down to five? I once heard a theory that if you look at a questionable seven in any format, I mean it will it will exclude the older ones that are right. like so high powered. I've heard of this, but if you modern and above. Uh, that you basically just the highest recovered mana cost. You just put it face down, and you look at that six, and you just go, "Would I would I keep this?" You know what I mean? If this was right. the six I drew, and I, I think that can be kind of interesting because it's like you do have those hands sometimes where it's like three lands, and and four cards, and one of them costs three, and three of them cost four, and they're all really good, and they're all like just what you want to be drawing. But you know that like you're not going to be able to you're not going to be able to execute your game plan unless you happen to draw probably a one or two drop in the first three turns, mm -hmm. you might get blown out. 
even like right. if it's exactly the cards you want to be drawn. You know? It's actually interesting. There is actually a full on like very easy to kind of grok math problem that you can do to figure out what are the odds of succeeding. Mm. And it, is this the Chapin? Yeah, this is the yeah. one that is, is in Patrick Chapin's yeah. book. Um, and he was kind of the first person to ever publicly post it. But before that, it was kind of like around all of the pro circle. But uh, basically what it comes down to is you take 100% and you subtract it by um, the total number of cards remaining in your library that you do not want to draw. Sure. Divided by how many cards are left in your library, and then square that by the number of draw steps you have until you need to draw your out. So okay. for those of us that have uh, no idea what you just said, <laughs> i.e. A-B. I.e. is just totally confusing me. No, no, give, give an example, because I'm sure people don't want to like write that down and just do the... So if you... <laughs> so basically the idea is, like, say you draw a two-land hand, okay. and you have... You know, I need a third land by my turn three, or else I'm going to lose. Sure. So there's you, if you take this math problem and kind of plug it in, and we'll post this on the list below on rocketjump.com. On rocketjump.com. Let's say you're playing 24 lands. So and yeah, I'll just on say average, for the record, lands. it's a monocolor deck. So just for the sake of simplicity, you, 22 lands are left. Right. So you need one of the 22 lands left in your 53 card deck. You okay. you know you subtract 22 from 53. You don't want any of those cards. You don't want 20. 31. 31 of the cards in your deck. Yep. So you divide 31 by 53. Okay. A lot of math. <laughs> sure. Um, and then you you know you need that by turn three, so you square that by three, or you cube it. Okay. Um, that gets you around a 80% chance of drawing a land by turn three. Sure. And so, so that means this hand is probably keepable. You have an 80% chance of getting there. And yes, sometimes you won't. But like that's if that is a percentage that you're comfortable with, which I think above 70% should yes, be a percentage you're comfortable with. Above 55%. Right. And I'll yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'd like to bring something up real quick. So... Andrew, uh, we pl you play over at Heidi Ho Comics in, in Santa Monica. Yes. That's how that's how we know each other, and mm -hmm. and I know that that store and the group of players around that store has really improved a lot in the last year or two, like mm -hmm. a lot more high high finishes and, and higher places and everything. And, and there was a, a friend of yours I know you mentioned who had shown up and, and really started kind of te showing you guys a little bit about his method of mulliganing that taught you something. And I wanted you right. to share that story because I thought it was helpful to hear. Yeah, like um, you. You kind of get better in plateaus with magic sometimes. Like, you'll gain a lot of knowledge just from one thing. And when uh, uh, my buddy Adam came in, Adam Ancuso, he's, like, two-time GP top eight. He's played on the Pro Tour three times. He's an absolute monster, right? Right. Like, every time I watch him, I feel like I learn something new. Um, but he was, he was telling me, like, I was mulliganing way too much in Limited. Because, I mean, all we'd usually play together is limited, and he would tell me that I was mulliganing too much. And, I mean, after I took that that kind of advice, and this was right before I went to uh, Oakland, where I got a top 16, he told me, don't mulligan so much, right? And I'm like, uh, okay, I guess. So, I mean, in day two, uh, I just started to not mulligan my two-lander. You just rolled it. I just kind of rolled with it, because he told me, like, it's better for you to run hot and limited than to go to six. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, it's it's the card. It's it's pairing right. the card disadvantage theory we were just talking about. Well, against... and limited is so much more about one for one matching your opponent. Yeah. So in that format, especially like not mulliganing makes a lot of sense because yeah. you know you're trying to play a creature that's bigger than their creature or remove their creature one for right. one. You're not going to have many card draw engines, especially because in limited, normally card draw engines are not good. Mm -hmm. And you tr and you traditionally would mulligan more before because you just sort of you'd get scared about the idea of your plan not being executed. Not, yeah. Not in that land. Not things not running the way you'd yeah, want. Yeah. It's like after, I mean, after seeing such a large sample size, I probably played about like 20 matches of Magic against Adam. Like, and he would rarely mulk. I'd say he'd mulligan like twice out of like those 20 games, right? Right. And after seeing his results and just like seeing how it's succeeded for him and how it succeeded for me, like it's really been ingrained in my mind to mulligan a lot less in limited. I mean, you can even see him in action. Like he... In top four of Philadelphia, it's on camera, it's probably on YouTube somewhere, he keeps, like, the loosest hand. It's, like, five lands, a two-drop, and a five-drop in, like, journey, full-block journey, right? Sure. And he's on the and he's on the play, and his deck's really good, and he just draws land, 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 and he loses. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I talked to him about that, he's like, yeah, I mean, I know that happened, but 
I feel like my chances were better that if I draw another creature, I'm going to win the game rather than going to six. Right, and, and that's something I wanted to bring up, is that I think so much more often than they should, people use past experiences of, like, bad beats right. to, like, explain their mulliganing right. decisions. anecdotal evidence is the it's worst. terrible. Like, the fact that, like, even if you play in multiple GPs, at most you're going to play, what, 100 matches a year right. at GPs, and then that's, like, a crazy amount, and that's not that's not a good statistical, like... Pool that you should yeah. not be basing your information on that. Like, there are hard, like good ways of mulliganing. There are good paths to doing this, and following those rules, even if it loses you games sometimes, is statistically going to help you in the long run. So here's an interesting point to bring up, and this I think relates to one half of it: the I, the I mulligan too much. Uh, the player that feels like they're starting to get better in any format, we'll say modern or limited, and basically the idea is they play too conservatively overall. They're afraid of their spell getting countered. They're afraid of going for it because they're going to get two for one. They're afraid of keeping the loose seven with two lands and five cards. How, how much more do you think you win by being aggressive as a Magic player just in general? Just saying going for it, not being so concerned, not constantly thinking about what could they have. I think you actually, you will win more if you're able to analyze the format you're playing and the deck you're playing with and realize, is this a deck that is better if I'm a conservative mulliganer, or mm -hmm. is this a deck that's better if I'm a liberal mulliganer? Do I mulligan a lot with this deck, and I can, like, can this deck and the opponents I'm playing, can the, can the opponents play punish me for mulliganing too much, and can my deck survive itself for mulliganing too much? And if it's not true, if my deck is like Valkit, where I need every land I possibly can play because mm -hmm. I need as many lands as possible to get in the play, then no, you, sh you should not mulligan as much. If your deck is like Jund, where if you get a Thoughtseize and a Bob and a couple lands and you're four, good to go. Hand, you're good to go and you're probably yeah. going to win. I guess what I mean, though, is is on the subject of mulliganing, I think somebody, one that mulligans too much right. is often indicative of your style of play, that you're overly yeah. concerned with trying to be in control of your strategy in the game more than you should in a game that really does rely in a lot of ways on variance. You have yeah. to be comfortable with the variance to yeah, play. Yeah, right. That, How aggressive can you be? Right, uh, that's, to bring up the Adam point again, like, he was in the same vein of him telling me not to mulligan as much, he also told me, make them have it. Like, let's say you're afraid of, like, a Thoughtseize, right? Sure. Um, just think of the odds that a Thoughtseize is in their opening seven. Sure. It's, like, it takes a lot, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Okay, my hand loses a Thoughtseize, and they have to have Thoughtseize. Like, that's multiple levels of, like, bad scenarios. Sure. So the scenario of make them have it is also is often really good because, I mean, sure, they can have it that one out of ten times, but the nine out of ten times, they're not going to have it, and you can go ahead with your not as, not as like, efficient hand, I guess. Actually, something to bring, I wanted to bring up with Adam and mm -hmm. you and the conservative versus the play style is that, like, there's actually, if there are many pros out there that if you statistically look, you can, almost every single one of them leans a specific way. Yeah. Right. Like, Paulo Vita de, Mo de Rosa, <laughs> butchered the name, um, is, like, the highest percentage of mulligans. He'll like mulligan most hands if there's any problem with them. And there's a few other places that, like, people, players that are just, like, exactly the same way where you can tell exactly what they're going to do. Right. And part of that is, you know, players play with specific styles. There are players that play control in every format no matter what, and they do well the years that control is good, and they do bad the years that control is terrible. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, depending on your play style, I think that really lends itself to how much you should mulligan or not. That's but something totally that fair, yeah. new players do need to learn, and I think a fear point for them is mulliganing at all. Right. I think they think, I got this hand, and it doesn't break one of, like, the cardinal rules of, there is only one land, or no lands in this hand, I have to mull it. That's, like, the rule, but if it doesn't break that, they'll keep it no matter what. And a habit players should get into is looking at their hand, thinking, actually, about their mulligan decision, and thinking about, what am I going to do? What am I trying to draw? What is my opponent trying to draw? What is my opponent going to do? And if my opponent is not going to have a bad hand, and is going to do exactly what it's trying to do in the way his deck is built, can I beat it? And if that's the answer is no, then you should ship your hand. Well, of course, and that's that's the whole thing, right? Is like if you if you do look at your opening hand and you do say that uh, if you know if they have one card in their opening hand that they're saying make them have it. Mm -hmm. If they have that one card, whatever that one card is, that's going to hose you, and you lose if they have that one card. A, you're playing a bad deck if it's that loose. <laughs> if, it's, if it's loose to one common card in the format, or Maybe you need to mulligan to six if it means you're going to have backup or you're going to have a second thread or whatever it is. I guess, like, a comparable situation is um, a Splinter Twin. Sure. Because uh -huh. Splinter Twin is a deck that very much has to have the consideration of make them have it because 
but if they don't have it, they win on their upkeep. Right. Right. Where this deck can probably mulligan a little bit harder. Yeah. Because it has the, now with especially dig through time, but like mm-hmm. normally I would say it wouldn't because you know it just needs to have enough dig and to be able to get to lands on time and be able to get really get there because it just needs to draw one part of its combo if it has one piece already. So I kind of want to get around to final thoughts for mulliganing so we can move on. Um, you know, the one rule that I always kind of want to make sure is that you need to look at your hand and say, ask yourself, do you believe that this can win? And then think about all that entails, but if it doesn't, then you should be mulliganing. Right. And I think that's the that's definitely the, base, the basic level one thinking you should have. But if, uh, let's say you're at a big tournament, you've practiced a lot, you I'm ready for this, right? Um, my rule of thumb is if I think about mulliganing the hand for a second, I just do it immediately. Really? Just snap it off. Yeah. If I think about it for a sec. So, okay, okay this is, but so we, we touched like a little bit further just on the idea of like, if you say to yourself, if they have X card in their hand that is a common card in the format, mm-hmm. and I can't win if they thought sees me or path this creature, do you throw the hand away or not? But this is, that question shouldn't be asked if you're playing a yeah. deck that's competent and modern, because yeah. they're like, your deck should be built in a way, if that you ask that question, if that card exists, especially if the yeah. card is played a lot, yeah. like, theoretically, if it's like, oh, this obscure card, they yeah. probably don't but, have, never right, mind, but, right. like, BB, you shouldn't BB, play that BB. deck. I'm <laughs> talking, I'm talking more, because, like, if this is, I've practiced, probably, if this is, like, I play 200 games of this format, right. 500 games of the format. That's all with this deck, you're ready to all go. With, all with this deck, all with this limited format, ready to go, like... You should you should be processing that if they have it, do I have it? Kind of like little mini game series. You should that should be processing very fast, and that should go into your decision. I should mull this, or if I think about mulligating this, then I should just mull it. It's actually very interesting. Uh, recently, Cracked.com did a podcast on the fact that your brain does a lot of thinking and processing without you even realizing it's happening. Right, and generally, and this is kind of why on SATs or like tests, they also tell you to do this. Whatever your first reaction to something is, is more often than not going to be the correct one if you know what you're talking about in that situation. Right. And if you're if you're proficient with a deck, you've tested it, you played it with against your friends a lot, and you, you actually get good at it, you should be able to trust your gut in these situations where yeah. this hand isn't good. Or like, even if you're like, eh, anytime you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to keep it. Exactly. The, the hard, fast rule most pros will tell you, at least at this level, is ship it. Yeah, definitely. There, there, there is a level where knowing the format and knowing what your deck is doing, but that also comes with that. Like, if I know mm-hmm. my deck and I play my deck, knows my deck mulligans well, yeah. then I'll lean towards that. If I, like, my deck doesn't mulligan well, then I will not have that emotional reaction of, this hand isn't good because it's going to be like, well, my deck doesn't mulligan well, so I should keep most hands. <laughs> I just think it's very interesting. I, I remember watching at least a couple pros. Paul Reisel comes to mind a couple years ago at Avacyn Restored where he goes to five, I think, in the top four. And what I wish is that there was sort of five minutes after after one of these moments where a pro has to go to five where they get walked through by the commentator. Hey, can you tell me why you went to six and then to five? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, the most recent example that comes to my mind is Pro Tour Gate Crash, where it was Eric Froelich versus Tom Martell, the eventual winner. Okay. It's game three, game five, actually. Super tense. This is when the series were five. But last game, very tense. Froelich snap keeps his seven on the play, and Martell is like, really, really tanking on six. And then he goes to five, right? Right. And I remember he's playing the Aristocrats, and his hand is like two lands, double Boros Reckoner, and okay. then like a blank, right? Sure. So like this hand is like super, super bad. If he doesn't draw another land, if he draws like another three mana spell, right. there were a lot of tap land. There were some tap lands in that format, and there were both check lands too, which are like the if they come in, if you don't have a planes or something. Oh, the enhanced lands. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he tanks for a long time, he keeps it, and then he draws land into Blasphemous Act and just okay. wins. Yeah. Right, it's, yeah. So, so I mean, that's obviously a situation where he was rewarded for just, like, going with it. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's also, I mean... <laughs> what are you going to go to four? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it comes down to, he like, every time you go down a card, you also have to realize that your chances go down if you go down a card. So, at five, my chances plummet going down to four. My chances aren't great now, but is it better than the plummeted terrible that is at four cards? And mm-hmm. most likely it was. Because he had outs like that. He had the ability to just, like, draw land, win, right. in, in by turn four, where... And that's a consideration you have to take into account, knowing yeah. what is possible, what your deck can do. And, and, like, we kind of say this every podcast, 
but testing is the most important thing yeah, that possibly sure. can happen. It definitely knowing is. Knowing what your deck can do, knowing what the format is like. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to do this podcast, and the reason we do deck techs every week, is to give a broad understanding of these are the decks you're facing and these are decks you should consider when you're testing. Yeah, the, 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 the uh, gauntlet, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, listening to this podcast as a series is like its own super gauntlet of gauntlets on gauntlets on gauntlets. <laughs> Except that we just talk about sweet cards also. Yeah, all, all yeah. the sweet cards. Speaking of deck techs and, and crucibles of many decks that we have to beat, uh, I want to get into the deck tech today, and that is going to be Scapeshift. Oh, yeah. A deck uh, that was uh, kind of actually unavailable originally when we uh, first got into modern with the original ban list. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, fun interesting fact and one of the reasons we're going to cover it right now is it actually topped it was the runner-up in this last weekend's gp madrid yep why don't you tell us kind of what the cards do in the deck and, and <laughs> the deck works. <laughs> all right so the plan for scape shift is to eventually ramp up to seven lands and then you resolve scape shift which reads you sacrifice all any number of lands and then put that many lands into play so what you do is you sack all of your lands you get one valakit and six mountains, so you can play like Steam Vents or Stomping Ground, because it's usually Rug. Right. So you get um, Valkit and six mountains, and then you dome them for 18. One of the reasons that Scapeshift as a card is unique in its effect is that there have been a lot of Searcher Library for lands, cards printed in history, but there's not a whole lot of them that let you get any land and any number. That's why it's yeah. always been historic so powerful. You can get non-basics, you can get basics, you can get... Yeah, but the deck is usually pretty fast to get to seven lands, because you play Search for Tomorrow and Sakura Tribe Elder, and another reason why going off at seven is so efficient is because in modern, a lot of people have shock lands, thought seas, fetch lands, lands. Right. so you can go off uh, essentially a turn, a turn earlier on seven lands rather than waiting for eight lands, right. but... You can dome them for 21 after and, that. And not to mention you. You're also playing a lot of lists play Lightning Bolt. You also have right. Sacratri Belters, and it's not ridiculous to start attacking your opponent for just right. a little bit of damage. There are many ways the deck can kind of get them to 18. And worst case scenario, if you have 8 land, you can fetch the lands and get 2 Valkuts and 6 lands again yeah. and dome them for 36 damage, which yeah. also helps against life gain and other problematic situations. Right. So because this deck is a deck that's going to... Try to get you on like what? What's the earliest can win? Turn four? Turn... Uh, it can win on turn five with counter backup. So yeah, that, that that's why this deck, the whole early game, is all going to be filled with just like the best blue and green and well, not green, but basically the blue and red spells that all well, yeah, the best blue and red spells. Remand and cryptic command and lightning bolt, just like control the early game, counter right. burn, etc., etc. It's where um, twin is very much a uh, tempo control uh, tempo combo deck. This is a control combo deck. It's yes. trying to stop you from what you're doing, survive, and then it'll just insta-win as soon as it's able. Yeah. Yeah, it's just trying to get that inevitability of, like, it's got really powerful cards right. in the upper right. echelon. Of which is one, it's one of the major decks that plays actually Cryptic Command, which right. is, like, we said earlier, there's not a lot of good catch-all answers for counter spells, and this is mm-hmm. the one that literally stops everything once you can cast it. Right. And is just also, like, does 18 other things that the deck needs to do. Yeah, some of it's, uh, it has a, some really good matchups against uh, Birthing Pod. Right. Birthing Pot is one of its best matchups. Um, game one, it's pretty much 80-20 in game one. It's very hard for Birthing Pot to win because you can remove their Hierarch and then you can tap draw until you draw Scape Shift. Right. So. The, the decks that don't have a way to interact with you on your level and can't race you are your best matchups. Yeah. Because if they're not going to kill you before you can combo, then you're fine. And if you they can't stop you from comboing itself, then you're just there's no way you can lose. Yeah. And Birthing Pot is a lot of doesn't have a lot of ways to really interact with on a level that you can't counter interact and then just win against them. Right. Um, for instance, you know, one of the major cards that gets brought in against Cave Shift, Aven Mind Sensor, which prevents mm-hmm. people I mean, it's a little, but basically prevents people from searching through their libraries. Right. Um, isn't as prob- as much of a problem for the deck because for two reasons. One, worst case scenario, the sacking your lands and searching for more lands is part of the resolution. It's not part of the cost. Right. So if they flash it in, you don't have to do it. You mm-hmm. lose the value of the card, right. but you have Snapcaster Mage to buy it back, and you have three other ones in many ways to dig for it. It's and, not like playing Harrow where you sack two lands. Right. Or so you sack right. Land. Digging for other cards. Possibly time. Possibly time, yeah. <laughs> With the inception of Dig Through Time in Cons of Tarkir, this deck has really shot up to the upper echelon of power top level. Power yeah. level. Yeah, definitely top tier deck. Um, right when Dig was spoiled, um, a friend of mine who plays it um, 
just jammed three of them in his deck, and it just made the matchup so much more difficult. Right, for the decks that could even handle on a level, because right. if you stop the first one, right. it now is a way better way to go find the next ones, yeah. and with it, counter magic to protect it. Right, because after you get in like a counter war, you're like, they're like, scape shift, you're mana leak, then they go remand of my scape shift, and then you're like, mana leak again, that just puts so many cards into the graveyard. Right. They could just end of turn dig because they have seven lands. Well, and this is also, you know, since then, a card that kind of has been under the radar in Modern and just since cons were printed has shot up in how many decks are playing it is Is It Charm. And it's great in this situation because, you know, it's replacing some of the looser uh, that are better than what it's doing to dig, but, like, the looser ways to dig for cards, like mm-hmm. Telling Time, with Dig Through Time. And one of the reasons is, like, you drawing two and discarding two, yes, it's kind of like a mulligan, yeah. where you're netting less one-card advantage, but you're also filling your graveyard, so it's kind of netting two mana and drawing you two cards, or, like, making your hand three two mana. cards better. Yeah, three netting mana. three mana, three yeah. mana. And so that makes your Dig Through Time so much stronger. It can dig you to your Dig Through Times. Yeah. And not to mention your Scape Shift on the other way to make your yeah. combo work. So it's kind of, the deck has become much more efficient, and all the cards working together much yeah. stronger than they used to be. And on top of that, it was already a very strong deck. Yeah, so, like, sometimes when you dig, you just, you find another shovel and another card advantage. So right. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Yeah, it is it is interesting that uh, Is It Charm got so much better with Delve being a, a powerful effect now. I mean, at Delve, obviously, the original Delve was, like, not super overwhelming. It mm-hmm. had, like, one good card. Tombstalker. Yeah, yeah Tombstalker was the best card. I mean, the, the other two, there were three Delve cards originally. Tombstalker was the one that saw the most play. Logic and it, Knot. It, Logic Knot. And Logic Knot was maybe the second, which is a counterspell. Yeah. And then the other one was a removal spell in a format where Goyf was, that couldn't kill green creatures, yeah, where right. Goyf was the best creature, yeah. so it didn't see any play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what what did Glenn always say about uh, about Dig versus versus Cruise? He'd take two of his top seven over three for the extra. Man oh yeah, like, Dig is like no question. This is the kind of the like we've talked a lot about decks where Cruise is very good. Yeah, and though it looks like Dig through time is just better than Cruise in Modern as well, mm-hmm. but like Dig definitively does more powerful things. Yeah, in decks like this where you're looking for specific cards, not necessarily an amalgamation of cards. Right. Yeah. Which is, you know, we were talking about this earlier. This is a deck that Mulligan's worse than, say, something like Delver, because Delver, most of the cards in Delver's deck are the same. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's the whole redundancy effect. Like, right. Which is why Treasure Cruise is a good card in that deck, and, yeah, and a good wrong. way to like we didn't really talk about this earlier, but if your deck has better with Dig Through Time than Cruise, your deck Mulligan's worse than if you're playing Cruise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a weird loose rule. You, you, if you're playing Dig Through Time, your deck is looking for specific cards, which means card advantage is king. Yep. So we've covered, basically, in that discussion, the fact that that's the cantrips, that's the card draw, that's the early game control. Now, aside from Scapeshift, the deck can win in other ways. It does have high-end yeah. threats. Often what it does is, after sideboard, it brings in a few major threats because people will side out all of their creature removal. If you're playing against a white, blue, white, red, generally their game plan is, okay, my path to exiles are terrible because they have zero creatures. And the creatures yeah. that they do have, they are meant to get them more lands, which path to exile does <laughs> yeah. for them. So they take out their best removal spell, and you can put in cards like Inferno Titan. Like, you know, these are cards that are that are going to have big card advantage, board, not card advantage. These are cards that are going to come down and be hard to kill, and they don't have the kill spell anymore and going right. to end them quickly. It's always funny when you play against, like, sort of... I mean, this is definitely a combo deck, but, like, combo decks in general, uh, you always worry about, like, at the early game, you're, you're going to counter the spell, disrupt the strategy, stop what they're trying to do, and you forget that if you if you side out enough cards to do that and you make your deck right. less effective, mm-hmm. you're just going to sit there and they're going to get to six and they're just going to cast an Inferno Titan and yeah. you're going to be like, oh. I mean, I've right. died, I've, I've played decks against Living End where I just, I, it's like counter, counter, and then they just, like, Beat down five with, three. like, terrible And you're just like, monstrous carabin. And you're just like, <laughs> go. Like, you're like, I can't beat your 5-3. I don't have anything. I just, yeah. you're like, draw Thoughtseize. You're like, oh, this is so bad. Yeah, one of uh, Scapeshift's worst matchup is easily Black Green X. Right. Because they have Liliana, Thoughtseize, Inquisition, which is, like... Just tears apart the hand. Like, as we said earlier... So bad for you. These are, those cards are great against decks that have problems with mulliganing. And right. this is a deck that has that. Like, because every card matters, they take out those cards. Though... Sideboard, that's what Ops, I was going to bring up, Austin and Baylock, Austin which is Baylock one of the super good. big threats that you bring in, because it's great against aggro strategies in general, yeah. but also, like, they play turn three Liliana, and they make you discard, and you get a free Austin and Baylock. Yeah, it's, it's so good, because it can't be Abrupt Decayed, and they don't play, they take out Dismember against you. It's literally unkillable. Right. Yeah, it's it's just awesome. Yeah, it, 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 and, you know, these are kind of the decks, like, you know, um, 
the, you know, Batter Skull is, another, is one of the most common threats for Scapeshift to bring out because it's yeah. like a threat that most decks can't handle that also, you know, helps your bad matchups, which are like your bad matchups are the decks that kill you quicker. Right. And other than Infect, most of those decks are through life total. And so mm -hmm. stuff like Batter Skull um, help you in those matchups. Stuff right. like Obstinate Bailoth help you in matchup. Mm -hmm. um, other threats are, you know, Thrun can sometimes come in because he's a yeah. very counterspell. You know, very good. it helps really your good control card. matchup. Um, and I think the last one is, you know, recently, uh, Koronos, which is the blue red yeah, god. Koronos is yeah. extremely good. Is, is very good. It's a threat that no one really has the ability to handle, especially yeah. if they take Path out and you're not turning it on, so Path isn't going to do anything. Yeah, it's very difficult to remove. And so it's just like this, like, card advantage engine that also kills them, so, like, there's not a lot that most decks can do against it. Right. Um, and just, you get it earlier because you're ramping. Just to kind of, like, combine our two points of this episode, um, Mulliganing and Scapeshift, um, just a quick story about a round that I had at a, PTQ in the, uh, I think it was like round six in the X1 bracket. So we were both doing pretty well that day. And uh, he keeps his seven. And then my six is like five lands and mana leak. Normally I'd keep that hand if there was a colonnade in it. Mm -hmm. But there was no colonnade, so I went down to five. And my five was like two tap lands and two snapcaster mages. And like a sphinx's right. rev. Like really bad, right? But what ended up happening was, I mean, I drew a land, an untapped land. So I just played two Snapcaster Mages and killed him with Snapcaster Mages because he took mm -hmm. out all of his Lightning Bolts, his Electrolyzes. Right. Right. And he tried to go for the kill without having counter backup. And, I mean, I drew a counterspell, and then that was, that was the game. Just he over-sideboarded, and Snapcasters killed him. Yeah, that's definitely uh, we didn't we didn't cover, and I don't think we necessarily need to get into it. But just for the record, that that is something definitely to pay attention to when you think about mulliganing. Your your whole game plan changes significantly in high impact formats like modern, where your the decks are very powerful, and if you might have really specific threats in your sideboard that that need to you need to draw these cards right. to win. And like we didn't bring up, but like legacy, it's classic. Like if you're playing against Dredge and you're playing Leyline of mm -hmm. the Void, like. I've just mulliganed until I drew it. I've I've gone on the two card hands and drew it and then beat them yeah. because like they can't win anymore. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An another one is uh, in RTR Limited the uh, thirty nine swamp pack rat. Right. Deal. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, a good yeah. one too. Or, or the even more fringe but horrible uh, Lost in Woods. Lost in the Woods strategy. <laughs> oh right. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the classics. <laughs> like, uh, I can't beat them. My cards are terrible. Oh, I'm just gonna take out all my cards and play that one card that I'll just win if yeah, I draw it. Forty two forests yeah. and uh, Lost in the Woods. Yeah. I never won a game doing that, but I tried it. <laughs> I tried more than once. Um, nice, nice. Good for you, man. <laughs> Let's uh, let's get to the gauntlet. Actually, yep. we we covered. You started to talk about birthing pod a little bit already, mm -hmm. and and why uh, birthing pod is the matchup that it is. So if you want to build on that, finish that statement, just to recap, so we can sort of go down the line here. Uh, against Scapeshift or yeah, against Scapeshift. We're oh yeah, um, yeah. So game one, super lopsided for Scapeshift. Uh, game two, they they have Sin Collector um, in Tumor Exarch, very powerful card. And normally most pod decks play like four of Thoughtseize and Cyborg. Right. Because they're just like because you need super bad in some decks, decks, yeah. In some decks, you need to switch. The, yeah. the decks that is worse for you as a pod player are the mm -hmm. decks that Thoughtseize is best against. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> pod needs Thoughtseize against like Storm this deck, and it's absolute worst matchup, which is Tron. So fair. Uh, Blue red Delver. I mean, blue red Delver. This deck has some game against because of the fact that it's playing a lot of removal that's good against them, yeah. and it plays at instant speed, and that's kind of one of the best ways to beat. Delver. You're, you're not going to take a lot of cards out against Blue Red Delver because your deck is already pretty good against it. Because you have Lightning Bolt and Electrolyze, which neutralizes two of their biggest threats, and you don't care if they cantrip for, for years. And also, they, they might they might yeah. sit there and try to think about what spells am I going to counter, what am I going to save my right. counter spells you for. You have Counterflux in your sideboard, which is uh, extremely good against them. Right. And, and it comes down to your you have much better inevitability than they do. If Easily. you can stop what they do, like you, uh, there's an argument made that you have the best inevitability of any deck in the entire right. format. Yeah. Um, the only deck that I think is even comparable is Tron in the mm -hmm. fact that it can eventually just start tutoring up Emrakul's every t every turn and killing right. them with them. Because yeah. um, when they're pointing bolts at your face, you're gonna you're winning the game. What do you think the difference uh, on the play on the draw versus uh, Blue Red Delver is with this deck? I think your matchup is worse if they're on the play, but I think yeah. everyone's matchup is worse if Delver's on the play sure, in general, sure. and that doesn't necessarily mean you're worse than them if they're on the play, but it definitely means that like yeah. 
Delver is just a better deck on the play versus the draw. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you have Bolt, it's fine, but like anything else, it's pretty pretty bad. And something, if you want to look at GP Madrid, like a new card that hadn't been really been seeing play for a while in the main deck is um, Pyroclasm. You okay. mentioned this in your top ten red cards. Yeah. Is like this is a huge hedge against Delver decks. It kind right. of handles their yeah. two major threats. Pyroclasm kind of wipes the board with, mm -hmm. and I think one of the reasons that the uh, Rug Delver deck that won that beat Scapeshift for the GP win. One is because Tarmogoyf is a deck that is a card that a lot of decks, especially this, looks like it's not being built currently to beat. Mm -hmm, like right. a, like this deck doesn't have a lot of answers yeah. for Tarmogoyf because Tarmogoyf was supposed to be a dead card, right? Um, which is what made it a live card. It's weird how life works. Sick, that way. The cyclical yeah. nature of it. <laughs> uh, okay, so what about uh, what about Affinity? What do we think about that matchup? We have uh, Scapeshift has access to red and green, which means it has Ancient Grudge, which is like the, one of the best cards. The, yeah. So yeah. good against them. It also, you know, they run stuff like uh, Crozen's Grip and like all these yeah. other like green is the best artifact removal. Yeah, right. and like the only card that they don't have access to that's like the Stone Cold Nuts against Affinity is. Um, Stony, Stony Silence, Silence. Right. but that's the only one. <laughs> yeah, everything else is like kind of in its toolbox and is very strong against them, and they yeah. play a lot of it. I mean, it's once again this the the thing you have to worry about affinity is it goes back to the racing situation. Mm -hmm. They're one of the decks that are going to try and kill you before you can combo, and right. they can because they can kill you on turn four. You have mm -hmm. to try and stop them by turn five. So game yeah. one, your affinity, your affinity has a really really good matchup, but game two, uh, not necessarily because you do have yeah. lightning bolts. You have it's, it's pretty fifty fifty. Yeah, okay. you have Visit Charm, you have Electrolyze, you have Snapcaster Mage, Lightning yeah. Bolt, which is always good against affinity. I but, mean, obviously, affinity can just nut on you like. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. It's probably the highest, right? The highest variance game one deck, uh, right? Yeah, it's very high variance. Because if you draw the right hand, it's just like stone cold bananas. But if you, right, if you yeah. get disrupted, you're, or... you're on the back foot until you win. Right, exactly. And, and, but like the thing is, is that you'll just win until <laughs> you win. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of one of the strengths of Scape Shift. Is I mean, that if you, you get just... to four mana against Affinity, you're going to win. Yeah. And yeah, it yeah. should be noted that. Uh, False Scourge plays the same role as uh, Shock Fetch. Them starting at 18. They, right. often, they often will start at 18. So they go can also do the opposite where if they strap any equipment to it or give it any type of power boost, that it starts getting them left. Yeah, 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 this yeah. is true. This is true. Um, which is why False Scourge is good. <laughs> uh, the... I mean, what it comes down to Affinity is that like it really is a race mm -hmm. and you're, you become much more of the control deck. Yeah. Um, Splinter next, Twin. Splinter Twin. The, That's a great matchup for you. Because when you're Scapeshift, your your combo piece is Scapeshift. Their combo piece is Splinter Twin plus a creature. Right. So it's a lot harder for them to assemble their combo without you disrupting it because you have removal and counter spells, which is Stone Cold Nuts against right. Splinter Twin. But your removal is only good against Pestermite. Your removal's not good against... Yeah, but that's... They usually play two Pestermite, four Deceiver Exarch, so that's like a large... Like, you're already cutting like, two of their win conditions. Well, the other, the other thing you have to look at is, yes, it's only one of their creatures, but, A, what you're saying is they have to draw then a different combination of the right cards, which is hard for them. Right, yeah, yeah. B, you also run out with counterspells. I mean, you're one of the few other decks in the format. There are really three that are yeah. heavy counterspell decks, yeah. and you have more than them. Yeah. You ha And you have arguably better ones than Cryptic mm -hmm. Command. Uh, another thing I want to point out, in, uh, in modern combo, in modern uh, counter battles, um... A uh, little-known trick is uh, remanding your own spells is actually very, very powerful. Right. So, like, if, if there's, like, a mana leak into a cryptic command, you can remand your own cryptic, and they lose their mana leak, you get your cryptic back, and you draw a card. Yeah, yeah. no, that definitely makes sense. It seems like a great way to get value out of remand. Yeah, yeah, remand, um, after playing a lot with it, you can definitely figure out some tricks with it, and it can be a really good card. Splinter Twin Scapeshift, to me, because because of the turn three, turn four nature of the combos, mm -hmm. uh, it definitely seems like a matchup where you are punished if you are not familiar with the way... If you're not familiar with the matchup and you it, haven't right, practiced and you right. don't know, like, yeah. oh, I need to sneak this in, I should tap their lands so they don't have their counterspell open kind of a thing, mm -hmm. I feel like you get punished if you're a really experienced player. I feel like either side could navigate the wind. Right. It's probably not going to be on turn four. It's probably going to be a little later than that. Yeah. Both of these decks, like, function 80% on the stack. So, yeah. like, understanding how Matt Comp... Uh, understanding how counter magic works, understanding how Remands can kind of interact with your spells and their spells, and knowing the best time of, like, really interacting with them. The other thing is that, you know, Scapeshift is one of the few decks that gets in a lot of counter wars because yeah. they ramp into the ability to play multiple counter spells a right. turn. So they'll play a spell, they'll counter it, they'll counter it, and then they used to have the, the extra counter to go above them. Yeah. Right. So it, it's definitely, you know, 
one of the ways they gain an advantage in these situations mm. among facts of you know playing stuff like counterflux which lets you just kind of stop what they're doing which right. is an uncounter counter spell um all right, so in conclusion with uh, Escape Shift, one of the pitfalls of actually going off on 7 is if your opponent has a cryptic command, you technically lose the game. Because when you bring in all your, your Valkit and your other mountains, they can, with the Valkit trigger on the stack, they can bounce a mountain, which will fizzle every single trigger. Right. Which means you deal no damage to them. So, to fight against that, the thing you really yeah. need to do... You don't technically lose the game. You're just in really bad shape. <laughs> yeah. I guess so, yeah. Well, one of the problems there is something to consider that we also didn't bring up is your deck has a limited amount of mountains. Right. And so, You can only deal so much damage. Right. You can only deal so much damage and say that happens, like, it could become very difficult for your second scape shift to really get enough mountains into play right. to really do the damage you need to do. Something actually pretty funny about the whole top eight of Madrid was there was a Soul Sisters deck. Yeah. Which is, I think it's the worst matchup for Scape Shift, like, even worse than Black Green. Right, because you just gain infinite, yeah. li- pseudo-infinite life, and then you yeah. can't kill them anymore. Yeah, you the deck literally cannot beat them. Right. It's it's actually very interesting how that worked well, out. It, it, it makes sense in the format of what it was appearing to be, because mm-hmm. Scape Shift was a deck that's up there. Uh, you have um, Delver, which is a deck that also is, like, all about your life total. Right. And you have, um, Burn, which is another deck that's, like, life gain just hoses. And so, right. like, those three decks all being, like, very weak to their life total being too yeah. high makes Soul Sisters a great choice for this weekend. Yeah, that guy really next leveled the entire tournament by playing a bunch of 1-1s. Right. <laughs> well, it's really funny, too, and then I think Soul Sisters illustrates such an interesting point about competitive level magic, which is that... You take an effect like life gain, which like good players usually in limited sets, or when they're set reviews, they're always they always just sort of like roll their eyes at like, yeah. oh, gain four life, way to go, buddy. But like, <laughs> you know, often at those high levels, like it's just because it's you know maligned so much, people don't pay attention to it. You can get way ahead by getting to thirty five. A lot of decks just won't be able to take you down. Like you, right. they won't be able to catch up, and your silly life gain cards will just win the game. Well, the, there's actually kind of a next level to life gain because like the first reaction of most players to learn is that life gain is bad. That is the yeah. first lesson you learn. Yeah. But then uh-huh. the next level is like, oh wait, life gain is good if it's attached to something that makes it good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when it's like Siege Rhino and Thrag Task, or like <laughs> right, like like, yeah. th- like uh, Batter Skull. Um, Lightning Helix. Lightning Helix. Uh, not what's the angel? Um, Baneslayer Angel. Bane like these Slayer. are all cards that are like classic, like rulers of the formats that exist in, and they're yeah. all just they're good because they gain you life among damaging it's or also, doing, I mean, sticking around. If you if you look at Lightning Helix as like one of the early like good life gain spells, it's interesting that like you can trace all of them to the second half of Magic. That basically the first 10, 12 years. They just didn't understand that they needed to make it more relevant. Otherwise, right, right. Healing Solve, this, we talked about this last week. When, <laughs> when Healing Solve is, is the white lightning bolt, it's, like, so embarrassing. Right, yeah. b- before Lightning Helix, like, Vin was, like, the answer to burn decks. Uh-huh. You brought it in as a sideboard strategy because there were a few decks that just were had problems with it. Right. Once they realized that, like, well, and, and before that, like, the Armadillo Cloak was really the first life gain card to like yeah. show up and be like oh wait <laughs> it's, really good. Yeah, yeah. it's impossible to beat someone that's beating down with beating my face with a creature that is also gaining like netting them double life disadvantage yeah. uh, gaining double life disadvantage for me <laughs> it is relatively hilarious that batter skull and worm coil were printed in the same block it's like really kind of funny that like yeah. two, two colorless massive life gain answers exist in, as part of one standard yeah. cycle like well, I mean, when new people come to the store, I usually tell them, like, uh, life gain's bad, but it's fine if you maintain a tangible advantage. So, right. again, if the life gain is stapled onto excellent cards, then it's awesome. Right. And, and that's something to pay attention to. Almost every card we stay that's good at life gain, other than some of the Soul Sister cards that just updated a GP, um, are, atta- are, like, the second rider to a card that's already good. Or right. not necessarily already good, but it's, like, the second rider that maybe brings it above that power level. And on top of that... It's like Kitchen Finks is better because it life gains. Right. But it's already good, right? Right. It's or, already a 3 2 efficient threat that can't die. Right. <laughs> yes. Siege Rhino is a 4 5 trample for 4 that they lose 3 life. So right. yeah. even just if you didn't gain 3, it still would probably be a pretty good card. It'd be playable. It probably wouldn't be modern playable, but yeah. it would still be definitely right. playable. It's relevant. Right. A, 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 even a 5 3 that comes into play, and then when it dies, you get another creature. Right. I mean, life gain is important. Like, what the undying version of uh, Kitchen Finks that nets. Like Mes- damages messenger. them is just not as good as Kitchen Finks and right. oh, yeah. the life game Geralt's is part of that messenger. reason. Yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I think that's interesting. Uh, I think that pretty much wraps us up for the day. I think we probably can kind of get to the shout outs and the uh, the conclusion here. What do you think, Kess? Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um. You know, you can always find me at Kess Wiley on Twitter. 
Uh, you can find me at uh, Ben underscore Bateman, or as I always say, find me on Instagram. I hate Twitter. Ben <laughs> Bateman Media, and uh, Andrew is a creature of the night, so he doesn't use social media. Right, but you can always find Andrew at the tables of Heidi Host Gaming at, in Santa Monica. Yes, uh, 1431 Lincoln Boulevard. Uh, we are a store who's always accepting new players who want to learn, get better, and my whole thing is... If I surround myself with better players or newer players, I'm always going to improve. Right, because either you're learning the pitfalls that you make by teaching someone new how right. to play better, and you are getting better by playing people that are better than you. So exactly. it's a, all ships rise with the sea. Yeah, Heidi has a pretty great place to play Magic on the West Side, and Andrew pretty much runs the place when it comes to Magic, so uh, definitely stop by and check that out. Um, and, you know, as always, we want to kind of shout out our sister podcast, The Command Zone. They do a bunch of Commander content, and it's really awesome. They do deck techs and cool stuff like that, uh, and giveaways. Uh, also, you know, the host of that is in VJHS on rocketjump.com. They just released their last episode ever this Monday. Oh. So that is one of the best web series out there. You guys should go check it out. It's awesome. It's Harry Potter meets video games. So video Game High cool. School is what that stands for, by the way. Oh, yeah. Video Game High School <laughs> is the name. And also, Jimmy uh, is raising money for his new web series called Band-Aid. It's a musical web series, and you can win a jet ski or a car. You don't even have to pay money. You can just sign up for the winning of the jet ski in the car, and if you really like the project, you can donate money. Is the jet Jimmy ski on the car? Uh, you can if you win both, you can put it on top of the car. It's not that big of a car, but I mean, you can put a jet ski on anything that you want. It just might break the thing you put it on top of. Jimmy is a tremendously personable guy. He's very clever, very. Yeah, he was on, you know, guest uh, of the podcast last week. We can't wait to have him back to uh, make fun of our make make fun of ours and us make fun of his top ten cards in any color in modern. Oh just yeah, just like last week <laughs> again. So I suggest I suggest you support Jimmy because he's great. Yep. Uh, and that's kind of it. I hope to see you guys next week. And uh, if we don't, because we may not have an episode next week, and we'll figure that out, and I might edit this out, but if we don't, because it's Thanksgiving, have a good Thanksgiving. Eat a lot of turkey, and then gorge yourself. And then we'll talk about magic on the next podcast. Magic. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the mmcast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator. <laughs>